open up to Acts 23. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. Last week, we went through verses 6 through 24, and we saw Paul um, do something that basically we, we talked about how we can all relate to, and that he got discouraged uh, because basically the things that were happening in his life were less than desirable, his efforts to do what God told him to do, and that's to preach the gospel, to tell people the good news about Jesus, um, weren't having very good results. As everyone he was telling in Jerusalem about Jesus, um, basically those the results of those efforts appeared to be unsuccessful. People they, they ended in riots with people trying to kill him. And we saw Jesus come to personally encourage Paul while he's imprisoned by the Romans and remind him of three things. First, that the Lord was with him, that his efforts weren't being wasted, that they were being used, whether he saw it or not, and that the Lord had more work for him to do. He wasn't done with him. Specifically, he eventually was going to use him to tell people about Jesus in Rome. And we left off with Paul or with the Lord divinely intervening to save Paul from a plot to assassinate him. If you guys remember, he basically, Paul catches, or his nephew catches wind of it. He goes to tell the Roman commander, and the Roman commander sends Paul away by night to Caesarea um, with a, a, an army to protect him. And uh, today, what, we're, what we are going to kind of see in, in, in this section as we continue on in this chapter is that we're not necessarily going to see his circumstances get any better, Okay. They're going to continue to be kind of adverse, if you will, or he's going to go through hard things. But what we're going to see is that even in the midst of adversity or hard things that we face so often in this life, God uses those difficulties to glorify himself through our willingness and our faithfulness to be able to stay in those trials. There's lots of Bible verses that talk about how we're to rejoice when we're suffering, which isn't our natural tendency, but how with God... There's purpose in the hard things we go in life. He uses those for his glory or to show himself to other people. And he uses those to produce maturity in our lives, okay? And um, it's a good reminder to us because basically one of the things we have to remember is that when you're going through something hard in your life, we shouldn't automatically assume that it's something that is bad that we should try to remove ourselves from, that because God has promised to work all things for our good and made, us, made it very clear that you are going to go through hard things in this life, sometimes he sends you into a trial to first do a great work in you, which I would argue we saw last week in that he personally ministered to Paul in the middle of that trial, all right? So he did a great work in Paul, but also so he can do a great work through you. And as Paul continues to go through adversity this week, what we're going to see is that he uses that for Paul to get to tell some people that needed to hear about Jesus the gospel. If he hadn't have been in that adversity in the situation he's in, he wouldn't have got to tell the people we're going to see today about Jesus. And they desperately needed to hear about him, okay? So um, we're going to pick it up in verse 25 in Acts 23. Let me pray, and then we will start going verse by verse. We're going to try to take a big chunk today, so we'll see how that goes. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, we just want to... Um, Make sure that we're not distracted, Lord. There's a lot of things that can be on our our minds when we come in here. It's usually quite chaotic to try to get to church. Part of that is just our busy lives, being tired. But the other part is just the enemy does not want us to be here knowing 
that the, your words are life-changing for us, for the better. And he doesn't want us to be close to you. He doesn't want us to hear what you have to say because he, he's bent on stealing from us, destroying us, and killing us. And you want to give the opposite of all those things. You want to give us life, true life. And it's found through your word. So, Lord, we want to give you our full attention so we can receive what it is you want to say so we can leave here experiencing that life, that blessedness that you intend for us. So, Lord, open our ears, open our hearts, and may we hear your very voice today as your words are spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. So with this entourage, if you remember, there's quite a big army that this Roman tribune commander sends Paul to Caesarea with because he wants to make sure he's safe. And with that, he also sends a letter to Felix, who's the governor of that area of Israel, of Caesarea, and lets Felix know who Paul is and why he's sending him to him. And that's what we're going to see here, starting in verse 25. It says, and he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, or Lysias, it's kind of said it a couple different ways. That's the name of the Roman commander. To his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man, speaking of Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now, is that exactly how things went down? If you guys have been tracking with us, I find it interesting that he leaves the part out where he had Paul bound and almost beaten, as we saw in Acts 22, before Paul saved himself by telling him he was a Roman citizen. He conveniently leaves that out because he knows he'd get in trouble. All right. It goes on in verse 28 and it says, In desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law or basically Judaism. That was their religion. But charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man or the plot to assassinate Paul, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Basically, what he's saying is that, best of my knowledge, I didn't see anything wrong with what this man did that deserved to be in prison or punished or to be killed, most certainly not be killed, which is what the Jews wanted to do. They wanted him to die. But since the Jews were persistent in wanting to see Paul dead, he's in essence passing the buck to Felix saying, well, I'm sending him to you so you can question him and you can decide what you think should be done. And it says in verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. So, this city, Antipatris, was a little less than halfway to Caesarea. Caesarea was maybe about a 60 mile journey from uh, uh, Jerusalem. And up until this city, it was an area that was heavily occupied by Jewish people and kind of with mountains and stuff. And so, past that point, it was mainly inhabited by Gentiles and it was flat and open. So there wasn't a lot of worry about him being ambushed past the city. So half the army or quite a bit of them, everything, everyone except the 70 horsemen, they leave and they, the horsemen take him on to Caesarea. And it says in verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea, 
and delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia or Cilicia, which was a part of Israel that he was, uh, Felix was in charge of governing. It says in verse 35, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium, which was basically King Herod's palace on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Fun little fact, if you go to Israel on one of our trips, you actually can stand on the foundation of that Praetorium. And actually the Rashanes, Josh sent me a picture where they were actually standing on that last week, which is kind of cool. If you guys know the Rashanes, they left recently to move there. So Felix, he decides he's going to hear this case against Paul. And this would end up being Paul's first opportunity to share the good news with somebody of Felix's authority and power, which if you guys have been going through Acts with us, would know that that fulfilled a prophecy given by the Lord to Ananias some 20 years before these events took place back in Acts 9.15, where the Lord said about Saul, who becomes Paul, Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And here's Paul's first opportunity to witness to somebody that's in that authoritative position as a king. And Felix, he orders Paul to be kept at Herod's beach house, basically in protective custody until his accusers arrive to explain their case against him. So even though he's imprisoned in less than desirable circumstances, God still shows his grace and not it not being the best or the worst accommodations, right? So it goes on. And this is in chapter 24, starting in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. He's basically a lawyer. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, this high priest Ananias, he's right around 80 years old at this point. So a 60-mile rough journey by walking or by horses or wagon, whatever, on like Roman cobble roads, that was a tough journey. So him going along with bringing a skilled lawyer and some other elders just shows that they were really intent on getting this conviction against Paul. They really wanted Paul out of the picture. And it says in verse two, and when he had been summoned to Turles, began to accuse him saying, since you talking to Felix, we enjoy or since through you, we enjoy much peace. Now, really quick. What you're going to see him do is really try to butter up and flatter Felix with a bunch of untruthful statements. This first one being that somehow Felix brought peace to that area. Now, historically, what what we know is that there was anything but peace in this area of Israel under Felix's rule. There were often riots and uprisings um, because of the way he led and... Uh, the way he'd respond to those was with very fierce brutality um, to try to get them to stop. Okay, so there, there wasn't peace. And then it goes on to say, and it says, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. Some of your translations might say worthy deeds, basically saying you've been doing worthy deeds. Again, history would tell us that Felix's leadership overall was very corrupt and done out of selfish ambition or decisions were made out of selfish ambition that were never in the Jewish people's best interest, all right? So 
there was no worthy deeds being done by this man. In verse 3, it says, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Now, again, gratitude was not something the Jewish people felt toward Felix. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness, again, something he wasn't known for, to hear us briefly. So again, he's giving him a bunch of compliments. He's flattering him to try to get him to side with them in their uh, opposition against Paul. And it says in verse 5, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, in your Bibles, there's probably a little note. And what it says is that there's some additional information given in some manuscripts. And, and what, what, why it's not included in here is that basically if something isn't consistently in all the earliest manuscripts, when this was translated from Greek to English, they usually exclude it and they put a note. But it doesn't change the context of what's being talked about. It just gives additional details. And what those details are is, says in verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And then it goes on to say, and we would have judged him according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias, or Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. So the charges they're bringing against Paul here were essentially that he was politically dangerous. An insurrectionist, right? Something we hear, I've heard in the last two years, right? That he incited rebellion and riots against the Jewish people or amongst the Jewish people wherever he went against the Romans. Basically, Tertullus calls him a leader of a group of people referred to as the Nazarenes. Now, back at this time, there were basically two derogatory terms that the enemies of Christians would call them. Either they were called... Uh, Christians, okay, and that basically translates literally to little Christs. And it was meant to mock Christians regarding being followers of Jesus, but actually it was a compliment because, I mean, that's what you want people to see you as, a little Jesus, right? Amen? We want to reflect Jesus. So it was a compliment to them, but they meant it as a mockery. The other thing they would call them were Nazarenes. And if you remember John 1:46, where it says, what good can come from Nazareth? Nazareth had this very um, reput- a, a, a lowly reputation. It's, it's kind of a place where nothing good could come from it. The people that lived there were just inbreds and in, in, in country folk or, or whatever. It had a negative connotation. And so to say you're a, a Nazarene, you're somebody from Nazareth, because that's where Jesus grew up. It was meant as a mock, a mock, mock, or mocking people. So those are the two things they would refer to each other. And at this time, there actually were, as I mentioned before, because of the bad leadership of Felix, there were many groups of people that did try to rebel against the Romans and create riots and revolutions. And so what the goal of this lawyer is, is to try to lump Paul and the rest of the Christians in with those group of people, even though that they weren't guilty of that, but to try to lump them in with that because he knew that Rome would not look favorably upon him then. And the only specific charge brought against Paul being that he tried to profane the temple, as verse 6 says. If you guys remember back in Acts 21, there is this accusation against him that he brought Gentiles with him into the inner courts where only Jewish people were allowed. Now, there was no evidence of that. Why? 
because it was just a rumor. It never happened, okay? But that's what they're referring to here. And then there's these added details that actually paint this Roman commander, commander that sent Paul to Felix, Lysias, in a bad light, making it sound like he was the one that was causing violence and, and that they were trying to fairly um, question Paul when like, like, and he ripped them away violently when that wasn't the case at all, right? They were rioting. They were trying to kill Paul and he actually was trying to stop the violence and save Paul from that. So they're even lying about him. And it goes on in verse eight and it says, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. So the high priest, the Jewish religious leaders there, they all agree with Tertullus, but they also, like like the lawyer, they offer no evidence to Felix since there was none to offer as Paul was innocent of all these charges. But Tertullus is, is just hoping that maybe he'll self-incriminate himself somehow when Felix is questioning him. And it goes on in verse 10 and it says, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Or basically, Paul's just saying, I'm glad to share all the facts regarding what they're accusing me of because there's nothing to hide. They're all in my favor. And it says in verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirred up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Let me ask you something. Have you ever had somebody lie about you before? Okay, one person. Wow. I must be like really just unfortunate with luck or something. I've experienced this a lot, but this is a great example for us to follow because the best thing you can do if somebody lies about you is just tell the truth. All right? Just tell the truth when you're given opportunities to to speak about it. Because if you did nothing wrong and you're blameless before God, then you truly have nothing to worry about. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean that some people might believe those lies. And there might be negative repercussions that come as a result of that. Because obviously that's what's happening with Paul. He's in prison because of lies of others. And that's an undesirable thing. That's adversity. That's a trial he's going through as a result of those untruthful, untruthful things. But here's the thing. You got to remember at the end of the day, if we know that God knows the truth, which he does, right? Nothing slips his mind. He knows the truth. And that that's what matters most because he's the one sovereign. He's in the one in control. He's in the one in, in real, like whether you see it or not, he's the one in charge of your destiny. And he's made it clear to us that his only will for us is good, pleasing, and perfect. And if I'm not at sin, I'm not at fault, then I've done nothing to compromise that will, okay? And that, so there's there's a surety, there's hope in that, and knowing that I'm blameless for him, and that's what matters most. And here's the other thing. Eventually, truth has a way of always coming out. The Bible actually tells us that in Proverbs twelve nineteen. It says, truthful words stand the test of time. But lies are soon exposed. Have you guys seen that happen in your life? Have you seen that proved to be true? I mean, here's the thing. We can leave the part of how the Lord does that and when he does that. If we make that choice 
to let him defend us instead of trying to defend ourselves. All right. I love how Paul just simply tells the truth. I've had numerous instances. Like I said, I can think about when I worked in a normal job, when I was working as an engineer for um, ODOT. And there was this one instance where um, I was at this training for environmental uh, like construction standards or whatnot. For some reason, the environmental people never really liked us construction people. Just there was friction there. Okay. And, um, for some reason they, they were, they were, they were sharing on environmental laws or whatnot. And I think I said something along the lines of just bringing up a question, like not meant in any bad way, but just like, okay, that sounds good, but that's not really how you build something. So we've got to figure out a better way. And Greg here knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, some things look good on paper, but they're just not realistic out in the field. And so I'm trying to explain that to them. And so I get back to the office after being in this training and my boss comes up to me and pulls me in the office and he's like, man, he's like, um, what happened at that training? And I'm just like, nothing. I don't think anything happened. Well, this, this environmental person said that you were basically like ridiculing her in front of the class and you were saying, and I'm just like, what? I'm like, I wasn't even talking to that person. That person wasn't the teacher. She was just somebody that was sitting in that class too. And I was like, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so he's like, okay, well, just make sure you document everything that's, that went on or, or whatnot. And her manager's going to be calling you. And so I talked to her manager and she's just like, yeah, she said that you were like calling her out and talking to her right in front of the class and, and, ma- and mocking her. And I'm just like, I don't know what is going on. This is, this conversation did not happen. I'm like, like Paul, I'm like, there's a bunch of eyewitnesses. Talk to them, see, see you know, and. And she's just like, okay, well, you know, just make sure everything's documented or whatever, and we'll see what happens. And like a week went by, and man, I was just like, what, what, what do I do? I, I'm like, all, I, I don't know what to do. Like this person's saying something that's completely not true, opposite of anything that happened. There were all these people here that could see it, similar to Paul's situation. And, and I just felt like the Lord just saying, just leave it to me. It's like, you've told the truth. That's all you can do. Trust me. And a week later, I kind of just followed up with their boss. I'm like, so what's going on with this? I haven't heard anything. And she's like, oh, that person came into the office yesterday and, and I questioned him about it. And they just said, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm just like, okay. Like they just basically had a completely different change of heart. And they said, yeah, that never happened. I never said that. I never said he said anything. So it just, what could have been a big deal as far as getting disciplined for something I didn't do just completely went away. And the same thing, you know, honestly, you know, anytime you're in a position where you're in front of people, you subject yourself to their opinions and you subject yourself to people saying things that are untrue to you to an even greater degree. And I remember when I first took over as lead pastor and some people disagreed with that. And there were just people that really, from my standpoint and my wife's standpoint, like that we really cared about that we were hearing these things they were saying that I'm just like, what? That's not true. I'm like, and I felt like the Lord really just reminding me through the whole entire thing. He's like, just let your character speak for itself. He's like, you don't need to defend yourself. And and I kind of just stood there and let the Lord defend me. And I got to see him do that on my behalf, like basically reveal anything that was untrue being said and it's in his timing. And honestly, remove like some people that were in a sense being a hindrance to the work that he was trying to do without me having to say anything or, or anything. And I just think that, 
This is a great example for us because all Paul does is simply tell the truth, trust God to defend him, and 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 he he basically, as we're going to see, protects him through this whole entire thing. And he even points out, like I said, um, you know, only 12 days had passed. There were tons of people there to see these events. If these things actually happened, where are the witnesses? All right. And he goes on to say in verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, that's what Christians referred to themselves as back then, which they call a sect. That's what he's saying they're calling them uh, or they're accusing him to be a part of. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both just and the unjust. Okay, so now Paul pivots, right? He tells the truth in response to what actually happened, but now he sees an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus, right? This is something Paul always does. He gets an opportunity to tell the people, talk to people. He wants to share the good news of Jesus somehow. And what he tells him here is basically, here's what I can confess to being guilty of if you want to call it a crime. I'm a follower of the way, or basically Jesus Christ. I'm a believer of all the word of God, just like these guys. They say they believe the word of God. I do too, especially the parts that talk about Jesus. And then I'm eagerly anticipating the resurrection, or basically I am eagerly waiting for the Lord's return so I get to be with him for all eternity. He's like, that's what I'm guilty of. And as a believer, every single one of us have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Hopefully these are things that we confess as well. First and foremost, that Jesus is not a way to God. He is the only way to God. Amen. John 14, 6 says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the father except through me. That's pretty clear statement, right? From God's word that there's only one way to the one and only true God. And what is that way? Jesus. Now that's an increasingly unpopular statement in the world. Why? Because Satan knows it's the only true statement. And if he can get people to believe something otherwise, guess what? Then they're lost still. And they haven't found the one that created them that loves them and died for them. And so as God's people, we need to stand on that truth as a foundation. Amen. Just like Paul did. Second thing he points out is that we believe all scripture is from God and therefore truthful. I believe all of the word of God. Can you say that? I believe all of the word of God. Second Timothy three sixteen through 17 says all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Again, this is an increasingly unpopular statement or fact, even within the church. As you see more and more of a progressive attitude of like, well, this doesn't really culturally apply to us. This isn't true. No, God's the same yesterday, today, and always will be the same. And the word of God is all true and it never changes. And it's the foundation for what we believe in because it's either all true or none of it's true. It can't be one or the other. 
All right. And what I've seen in my life, it always proves to be true. And if we sit there and we start to pick and choose, then what we're doing is we're telling God, this is who I want you to be. But here's the problem with that. The whole concept of God. If he's real, you don't get to tell him what to be. He tells us who we are. All right. I'm not his judge. He's my judge. And so we listen to what he says. And this is what he has said. And we believe all of it. Amen. Third thing, we should be expectantly awaiting our resurrection or his return. Amen. This life is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. This is as bad as it ever gets for us, which the Bible is very honest. When we go to be with him, we will be in different bodies that don't hurt that don't get sick, that don't age, that aren't subjected to the the difficulties we face because of our flesh here. We will live in a perfect place called heaven with our perfect God forever. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and now dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again. We also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So if you've lost loved ones that believed in Jesus Christ, you can absolutely know, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 8, this is what he's talking about. Their souls have gone to be with Jesus. They are with the Lord right now. There's no purgatory or nothing. They're with the Lord in heaven, okay? And when he comes back, They will come back with him. And it says in verse 15, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. So their souls are with the Lord, but their bodies will come out of the grave and instantly be transformed into their heavenly bodies. Paul talks about how our bodies here, they're not suitable for heaven. Heaven's a different place. We will have perfect bodies and their bodies will be reunited with their souls and meet the Lord in the air. Then verse 17, it says, then together with them, we who are still alive, this might be us, this might be in our time right now and remain on the earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Instantaneously, we'll be transformed in our heavenly bodies to be with the Lord. And here's the best part. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Aren't those encouraging words? That's the reality. There's some differencing of opinions as far as the the timeline of that and how it exactly breaks down. But every one of us agree as a believer that we will be resurrected and be with the Lord in heaven forever in eternity. And we look forward to that day. It's an encouragement. Amen. Amen. So he goes on in verse 16. He says, because of this, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Or because I am a Christian, because I believe all of the word God is true, because I'm eagerly waiting for Jesus's return. I work really hard to make sure I'm blameless for God. I'm not perfect, but I try really hard. And if I mess up, I'm going to tell you guys, okay? And he goes on in verse 17, he says, now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. So he's 
basically going through the timeline of events again. If you remember, when he came to Rome, one of the reasons he came is because all of the Gentile churches he had planted gave him offerings and tithes to bring to the Jerusalem church as a gift to help them. That's something we do when we go visit missionaries, when we go visit the Word of Oz. Um, in a month, my wife and I, I know that they've been financially uh, lost some support this year. So as a church, we're praying uh, as leadership to take them a gift to help make up for that shortfall. This is what Paul did here when he came to Rome, uh, when he came to Jerusalem, I should say. Verse 18, it says, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything else, uh, anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing amongst them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So he kind of repeats what he said, adds some more details, and basically shares with them, here's the reality. There should be tons of evidence for anything they're saying, and there's nobody here. There's no witnesses. So that in itself shows you that I'm innocent of what they're saying if they can't provide that. He's also sharing with them that here's one thing I might have been guilty of, and I feel kind of bad for. I knew that the Sadducees would get upset if I said that I believed in the resurrection or afterlife, because we went through this last week. They didn't believe in that. And so he, he played that to his advantage so that they kind of forget about prosecuting him. And this is where I was saying he might've regretted that later, thinking like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. And so he's like, if you want to call me guilty of a crime, you know, I did do that and I'm sorry for it. It goes on in verse 22. But it says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix says here has a good understanding to some degree of Christianity in verse 22. He's not convinced by the religious leaders' arguments that Paul was guilty of anything. So he decides, hey, I'll send for Lysias. I'll send the Roman commander. I'll hear what he has to say before making a decision. We'll go ahead and keep Paul in custody, but we'll still give him rights. Like anyone that wants to come visit him and, and see him, tend to him, we'll let that happen. And it says in verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, anyone you're looking for a name for a daughter, there you go. I don't know if, how that name came about, but <clears throat> uh, his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Now, history would tell us she was a teenage girl and basically Felix had an adulterous affair with her and seduced her away from her husband. So they didn't get together under good circumstances. And it says, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus, or basically how to be saved. Verse 25, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. Or basically, he's hoping for a bribe from Paul so that he uh, can release him. Like, pay me money and I'll release you. So... Or because of this, he sent for him often and conversed with him, not because he was interested in how to be saved, because he had selfish motives in mind. He wanted to get money. So interestingly enough, it would appear that Felix, who already had some accurate understand, some somewhat of an understanding of Christianity to some degree, as verse 22 says, 
along with his wife, they wanted to hear more at one point at the beginning here. They wanted to hear more about who Jesus was, about Christianity from Paul. And they invited him to come share with him. And I like how it says Paul reasoned with them. Because here's something you need to never forget. That the gospel and God's word is always reasonable to anyone that is truly willing to listen to it and think about it, okay? Scientifically, it proves to be reasonable. Logically, it proves to be reasonable. Philosophically, it proves to be reasonable. If somebody is choosing to argue with any of it, they are the ones that are being unreasonable. And we need not forget that, okay? And it would seem that Paul must have had some knowledge of how Drusella and Felix ended up together or of their reputation in general, which wasn't a good one according to history, judging by the three aspects of the good news that he focuses on when sharing it with them. First thing he talks about is righteousness. Because here's the reality. Drusilla and Felix were not right before God in their actions. Or guess what? Shocker. They were sinners like every single one of us, like the rest of the world. But God still loved them despite their sin against them. And they could be forgiven of that sin like anyone else, no matter how bad it might have been, and made new creations through faith in Jesus Christ and made right before God. However bad they were at sinning, and history says they were pretty bad at it, God was way better at saving. And so Paul used that to share with them how they could be right with God. Then he talks about self-control. Basically, the reason for all of the sin in their lives was because, like the rest of us, we are born with no self-control, all right? Or the fact that we're all born with a nature to indulge our flesh or do what we want to do and not knowing, despite what we say, we're not all born, the world would say you're born inherently good and you're polluted. That's not what, just look at a baby and look how violent and angry they are when they don't get their way. No, none of us is born good. We're born inherently evil because we don't know the difference between right and wrong. We need God to open our eyes to see that and then help us live in right. So we have no self-control. So he's explaining to them the reason for these actions in your life and all the destruction that you're causing. And if you're being honest, you see this is because you have no self-control. But through faith in Jesus, you can be set free from that bondage And God will personally send his Holy Spirit into you and open your eyes to see what is right and good and then help you live in that right and goodness and that satisfaction you're trying to find in all these things in life that are only doing damage, you can have in Jesus Christ. There is hope for you. That is what he's telling them. And then last but not least, he talks about judgment because Felix's and Drusilla's sin justly deserved judgment and because sin brought death into this world that judgment ultimately was death physical death which everyone in this room is subject to 10 out of 10 people will die but even more so than that the worst death is spiritual death or separation from god because if they did not place their faith in jesus christ and receive the free gift of salvation or forgiveness that jesus won for them on the cross They would die 
in their sin or guilty of their sin and have to stand before God and prove to him how they lived perfectly right lives, which nobody can do in their own power. And that would amount to eternal separation from God. And for good reason, verse 25 says, Felix was alarmed by what he heard. But instead of receiving God's free gift of salvation that was being offered him, he tells Paul, just go away for right now. I don't know if I'm ready to to believe this or, or receive this is that make a decision right now. I'll just I'll have you come back later. But here's the sad thing about that, because indecision is always a decision when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ, because when you've heard it, when you've heard your need for the Lord to save you and that because of his love for you, he's offered that way to be saved. You have only two choices. It demands a response. You're either going to accept it and believe it, or you're going to reject it and deny it. And here Felix rejects it. And it going on to say that the only reason Felix continued to converse with Paul was because he had hoped Paul would pay him off to let him go, which also shows us that Paul potentially could have got himself out of this trial if he wanted to. He probably could have got his supporters to come and given him some money so that he could pay his bail or, or whatnot, pay, pay Felix off so he'd get out. But he doesn't choose to do that. He chooses to patiently endure. Maybe him understanding at this point that, hey, God's using this to get me to Rome. That's where he wants me to go. So I'm just going to go with the flow. And then him also understanding, hey, God's using this. I just got to share Jesus with these people. They need to know Jesus. So he's seeing that, again, he's letting God's promises dictate his his interpretation of his circumstances. And that that's what we always want to do. We want to let God's word interpret our circumstances, not our feelings, right? So that's what he's doing. Verse 27, and it says, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So under Roman law, the type of custody Paul was in could only last for two years. Felix appears not to really care for that because he leaves him in, according to verse 27, longer than two years. Not because he thought Paul was guilty of anything, but for the same reason Pilate crucified Jesus. He basically just, it was political ambition in wanting to appease the Jews. And history tells us that Felix, his corruption or his corrupt ways eventually caught up with him. As Caesar removed him from power, replacing him with this Porcius Porcius Festus, as verse 27 says, eventually bringing Felix back to live in Rome under um, kind of like shameful circumstances, or basically he lived the rest of his days disgraced for not being able to do what he was supposed to do when he was governor there. And then Drusilla is said to have been killed a couple years after this interaction with Paul, after being caught in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius near Italy, dying at the young age of 21. Truly a sad ending for both of these people, not just because of their unfortunate circumstances, but even more so because best to our knowledge, they never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that is always a sad ending for anyone that has the opportunity to do that and makes that choice not to, because we only have that choice here on this side of eternity. Amen? Amen. Now, as we kind of wrap up, there's a difference between knowing of the way 
and knowing the way. And it is of the most importance that we know which category we fall into because it determines whether we're spending eternity in a relationship with God or separated from him, a relationship that starts the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Verse 22 says Felix had accurate knowledge of the way, or he knew who Jesus was. He knew the good news. He knew that he'd heard, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. And he should have been able to see that in his life if he was being honest with himself. So, and he was explained that here's the good news. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. This Jesus that was living here on this earth and died and resurrected from the grave, that was all for you. That was to pay the price for your sins. And through faith in that, you can be forgiven. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. God loves you. And he, that free gift is for you. But he didn't choose to accept that. And therefore, he didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. And hence, he was separated from God by his unforgiven sin. And when given the chance to receive Jesus as a Savior and Lord, even appearing to be alarmed at one point or convicted Understanding that's me that he's talking about. I need this forgiveness. He took a wait and see approach or I'll get around to deciding later. It being a common tactic by the enemy to get us to wait when given the opportunity to believe in Jesus. Why? Because he knows every second that you choose not to place your faith in Jesus is a second that you are under his influence and control. And with his goal to steal from you and kill you and destroy you, it gives them a second to continue on doing those things in your life until hopefully getting you to a place of dying when you will no longer have that opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ. And Satan also knowing that the more we say no to God, the easier it gets to keep saying no to God. Because if we don't, in that first moment of conviction, in understanding our need for Jesus to save us, if we don't react and believe in him, it gets a little easier to say no the next time and then the next time and so forth, forth until we're like Felix, where at some point he wasn't interested anymore in hearing about Jesus. He became so hard, all he was interested in his, was his selfishness, calling for Paul to get money out of him. And the reality is it's not ever enough for any of us to just know of Jesus. We need to understand our desperation without him. We need to understand that I'm not right in God's eyes. And I can never be right in God's eyes. Because God is perfect and just. And so as such, if there's any imperfection in me, anything I'm guilty of that is wrong, he has to justly deal with it. So there's no way I could ever be perfect in my own power so i desperately need his help to make me perfect i need to understand that i have no self-control it's not like i'm better than stephen or i'm better than brendan that that's a, a fallacy the enemy puts in your mind to somehow think that it's we're graded on a scale my calculus class in college was graded on a scale. It's the only reason I passed. That's not the way it works. If you're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of breaking the whole entire law is what the Bible says. There is no scale. In our eyes, we might be better than other people, 
But that's a misunderstanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because what the Bible teaches us is apart from Jesus, we're all as wretched as we could ever be. I am just as bad as Felix. I am just as bad as Drusilla, even if I'm not guilty of doing the same things they did. But with Jesus, I'm as right as I could ever be. Not one of us is better than anyone because we're all perfect in God's eyes. Amen? I need to understand that I'm going to be judged. That I'm going to have to stand before God at the end of my life if I've not received that free gift of forgiveness in Jesus. And I'm going to have to sit there with a straight face and tell the God that knows all things that can't be lied to that, yeah, I, I'd live perfect. I never did one thing wrong. And that ain't going to happen. I need to understand that I'm a goner if I don't have Jesus saving me. And what that does is it only drives you to one place. It drives you to him. And it should alarm you if you're somebody that hasn't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. First time I heard the gospel, and I, I'd heard it before, but the first time I really listened to what was being told to me, it scared the heck out of me. And the first person I ran to was this college pastor the very next day that I'd heard talk about God's word because all I knew is I am not perfect. I am guilty of so much sin and I, I, I'm that person that needs to be forgiven. And this Jesus person, if, if he's the one that can forgive me, then I need to know about him. And I went in that meeting and I talked to him and he explained the good news to me and I received it right then and there and I never looked back. I believed it in faith, but then God sent his Holy Spirit into my life and I saw how real he was. And I saw how everything I was looking for and all the wrong places were found in the one right place and that was in him. And I've been a work in progress ever since. And I stand here as a product of his grace, just like all of us that placed our faith. And I'm no longer scared. If you placed your faith in Jesus, there is no reason to be scared. First John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out fear as fear has to do with punishment. I'm no longer scared because that fear comes with this horror of being punished. Whenever we're worried about bad things happening to us in life that produce fear, it's because we're afraid of being punished. But what the Bible tells us is that punishment that we very well deserved, Jesus took upon himself so we wouldn't have to be punished. And so there is no punishment for a child of God. Through your faith, that punishment has been dealt with. And now you've experienced perfect, unconditional, sacrificial love every single moment of your life for all eternity. And I can stand here 100% in certainty and say that I am right before God. And there is only one way to him. It's Jesus. He's shown me that. That all his words true. It always proves to be true in my life. And when I'm in it, I have the safety of knowing even if things don't look right or they don't feel right or they're hard, that God is going to work them for my good. And I see that proved to be true and true again. And I have this great hope of knowing that any second, any day, I'm going to see Jesus. And when I do, I'm going to be with him forever in a place of perfection. And everything that is so hard, that feels like it lasts so long, that feels like it's never going to go away, it's going to be gone at that second, never to return. Amen? That's our hope. Yes. Give the Lord a round of applause. So, 
As the worship team comes up here, here's what we're going to do as we close out, all right? We're going to take communion because this is what communion is symbolic of. Jesus gave this to us as a way to remember what he's done for us. We take that cracker and it represents his body that was broken on that cross for you and me to pay the price for our sins. And we eat it and we remember, we thank God. If we have any sin in our life, we confess it to him. We acknowledge it was paid for. We're forgiven of it. Lord, help us live in that new life free of that sin. We take that bread, we eat it, and then we take the juice because it's symbolic of his blood that that atoned for. It, it was what paid that price for our sin. And we remember that, that we're forgiven in God's eyes. We need to remember that because we forget that so often. So it's good to do communion often. That's what we do as believers. But for anyone here that if you are like Felix or Drusilla. You have not made that decision to believe in Jesus. What are you waiting for? You've heard the good news today. You've heard of your need to be made right with God. And if you're being honest, you know that's true. Even before we know God, we know we're not perfect. We understand that. I would argue that Felix and Drusilla, even in all the horrible things they did, they knew that they, what they did was wrong. They just We have a way of the longer we live in sin, we start to justify why we, we, we are right to do wrong things. But we know they're wrong. And if those wrong things separate us from God, we need to be, and we need to be right with him, to know him, for him to fix us, to help us with our lack of self-control, to, so we don't have, aren't judged at the end of our life. What good reason is there not to receive him, not to believe, not to take that free gift and ask God to come into your life and change us for the better and help us. There's this verse Paul talks or says in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2. He says, as God's partners, that's anyone here that's placed your faith in Jesus. We're all partners with God. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. What he's saying there is, if you've heard this marvelous testimony of God's kindness, that despite you not deserving it, he loved you anyways and loved you so much, he gave the greatest demonstration he ever could in sending his son Jesus to die and take the punishment your sin deserved so you didn't have to. Don't ignore that. Because God's heart as he says here, for God says, at just the right time, I heard you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. God sees you and he hears you and he's here to help you right now. That tug you feel in your heart, that alarming, like Phoenix felt, that that's conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit of God in this place telling you you're not here by accident. He made you to know him and he brought you here today for you to leave with a relationship with the living God of this universe. And you can through believing in his son today. And so my challenge to you is don't react like Felix and Drusilla Don't react with indecision. Make a decision today. And call out to God. 
Receive him into your life. Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn towards him and ask for his forgiveness. If you don't know how to do that, because that might sound kind of intimidating, if you're, this is your, maybe your first time at church, did you come with someone? We'll have our prayer team around the room if you didn't. But if you came with someone that's a Christian and they invited you, turn to them and say, that's me. I need help praying to receive Jesus and they will pray with you. And if you didn't come with anyone, we'll have our prayer team around the room. We will pray with you. And after you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you come and partake in communion and you praise and thank God for the sacrifice he made for you. Amen. For the rest of us during this last song, you come up on your own as you praise the Lord and take the communion elements and partake in it and thank God for the gift of salvation he's given you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, right now, I sense that there are people here Maybe they've come to church for a while, Lord, and they just, what you're ministering to them is that they know of you, but they don't really know you. That's missing from their lives. And today's the day they truly want to surrender their life to you and give it to you because they're sick of being Lord of their own life and it not working out. Maybe there's somebody here that somebody invited today and they didn't know what to expect. But right now they feel you drawing them to yourself. They feel that need for you in their life. And today is the day of salvation for them. For the rest of us, Lord, we are so thankful that you've saved us. May this be an opportunity where you just give us a fresh understanding of the love that you've shown us, that you continue to show us every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.